2020 is the year of the ocean, and plastic waste often ends up in oceans and damages marine life. Fact is, it's a global problem. James George is taking this head-on, leading the Plastics Economy Initiative for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. James George, how are you rethinking the future of plastics? It's a really great question. I think you, no one can really escape this sheer challenge that we face around plastics in our in our oceans and our environments at the moment. You know, the statistic that one of our reports around more plastics than fish in the ocean by 2050 is one that really resonated with people and was very tangible in terms of understanding the scale of this challenge. I think, though, one of the focuses or one of the challenges is around where do you deal with the challenge? Is it when the material has entered the ocean itself? Or do you come all the way back upstream and stop that happening in the first place? And I think that is sometimes where the real challenge exists. Got it. And that, that circular economy concept is what we'll be exploring today's conversation. Welcome to a special edition of the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with thought leaders about achieving resilience in the era of stakeholder capitalism. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute. And today we're coming to you from London's iconic Abbey Road Studios. Who is James George? James is part of the business team at the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, charity leading the transition to the circular economy. He helps organizations find the right programs and right platforms to partner with the foundation. James recently relocated to the Isle of Wight after spending a dozen years as a mine clearance diving officer with the Royal Navy, traveling the world and enjoying the adventure. James, thank you so much for joining us. Jeff, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Well, first of all, we have to explore a bit about your background because I don't know about you, but mine clearance diving officer just invites a question. And what's your background? I guess my profile is slightly different to the conventional colleagues that I would find here at the foundation. I started my journey off the back of the university, entering the, the Royal Navy. And as you quite eloquently introduced there, found myself then training to be a, a mine clearance diver and finding myself uh, in a number of weird and wonderful places across the globe where it was hot and sandy, but you probably wouldn't want to be going on holiday there. But uh, that was a, a, a fantastic chapter, a fantastic learning experience in the journey, which prepared me very much for, you know, I guess some of the challenges and some of the uh, interactions and conversations I have today as part of the, the business team at the foundation. Did that influence, that time in the water, literally, influence your, your joining the foundation and your, your interest in circular economy? I'd have to be honest and say no. I think the dynamic there and the requirements and what you're focusing on in, in that kind of environment, albeit relative at the time, is quite a world away from where I, where I find myself now. And certainly my journey to the foundation was unusual. It was very organic around a social scenario within my kind of network of friends and colleagues, but family moving back to the Isle of Wight, which is where I'm actually from originally but left sort of 18 years ago and said I'd never come back. Uh, and then finding myself to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation um, almost two years ago now, um, which has actually just disappeared in an absolute flash. Mm. How did you first become interested in the circular economy then? After the military and working in London for a startup, and, which was not connected to this sort of sector at all, and almost having a, a kind of realization after 18 months that the role I was doing had certain satisfying criteria to it, wasn't really doing any good in the world. And then happened to have a number of conversations with some mentors around 
the third sector, the charity sector, and, and about reconnecting about what I found to be really important for my, firstly, my professional well-being, but also my psychological well-being. Uh, and through a course of a number of conversations, happened at one stage to be talking to some, some friends who work for this organization called the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, um, who started talking to me about this concept of circular economy. And through the course of uh, me telling them my story and them telling me theirs, one of them said, actually, there might be an opportunity here for you to get involved in the work that we're doing. That's good, especially aligning that uh, the psychological as well as the um, intellectual interest. Given that background in charitable work and in the third sector, as you call it, how do you define the circular economy? What's it really mean? Well, we have a very clear sort of narrative and definition of what a circular economy is. And, and I guess the easiest way to explain it is to talk about where we are now. We, we live broadly in what we would describe as a linear economy, a take, make, waste economy. We take stuff out of the ground. We make stuff. And at the end of its useful life, we throw it away so that we can get the latest version or the, the latest generation or the latest update of, the, of those particular commodities. And the challenge with that is that it's, it's built based on taking stuff out of the ground, which is finite. It's stuff that once we use it up, we don't get it back. And whilst over the last two or three hundred years and a, and a couple of industrial revolutions, we've done very well at that. We've generated billions, if not trillions of dollars. We've lifted billions of people out of poverty. The challenge is that fundamentally it is built on a source material that is finite. So that can't work in the long term. And that's even before you get into the environmental impacts that come along with that. So a circular economy is an economy that looks still at growth. There's still a fiscal argument, but growth in a restorative and regenerative way. It's based on three principles, to design out waste and pollution, to keep products and materials in circulation at their highest possible value, almost indefinitely, and to regenerate natural systems, regenerate natural capital, so that we can continue to grow and see growth in our global economies, but do so in a way that's most restorative and regenerative to the, to the systems and the globe that we live in. How is the Ellen MacArthur Foundation contributing to this narrative and helping businesses in these initiatives? We, for the last 10 years now, since Ellen MacArthur established the foundation back in 2010, we've been focusing on our mission, which has been to accelerate the transition to a circular economy, to shift that dial from, from linear to circular. And we do that by working with five main groups. We work with the business and corporate community. We work with governments and cities and institutions. We work with universities, so higher academic practitioners, with emerging innovators, the smallest of small to medium enterprises, and then a series of other knowledge and strategic partners. And the reason being is because this is about system level change, system level engagement. So while the business and corporate community are really important in that discussion because they're the engine in our economy, Actually, they only form part of that solution. You need the right conditions, the right policy, the right framework, which is where your, your government and cities folks come in. You also need to take people on this learning journey as well to, to something new, right? So you, you need the academic, whether that be degree, master, PhD level learning, or all the way back to 
grassroots and exec level learning in between. And then you need the, the emerging innovators, the source of great disruptive technology, be that blockchain or the internet of things or the uberization of the world around us, or just new developments in materials and processes that allow us to approach these challenges in a different way. And then finally, that group of knowledge and strategic partners, the likes of Cradle to Cradle Institute, Biomimicry, the Blue Economy, the Rocky Mountain Institute, which just helps to keep that ecosystem as rich and vibrant as possible. Got it. That's pretty comprehensive. Broadening that perspective, can you give some examples of how the circular economy is good for the so-called triple bottom line, people, planet, profits? So I think if you look at the circular economy, there are, there are three clear areas there. The actual economic, fiscal side of it, the societal impact, and the environmental impact. And certainly in some of our original reports around 2013 and, 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 and beyond, we spoke about those three different areas, um, which today are translated in different ways, but people, planet, profit is a, is a really kind of up-to-date sort of nomenclature around that. And whilst we focus primarily on the fiscal element of the circular economy, the fact that across the globe, this is a trillion-dollar opportunity. Um, what we have found is that is the best way, when you're engaging with the business and corporate community, that is the best way to talk to them about terms of growth, which they're used to, rather than necessarily saying, if you don't do this, bad things might happen. But then when you start to drill down further around what a, uh, an inclusive economy might look like when you start adopting circular economic principles, that's when we can start to tackle some of these other elements that are really, really critical in this, in this discussion. Um, even uh, in the last couple of months, New York Climate Week, lots of noise and great kind of discussion around, around that uh, topic of climate change and the Paris Climate Change Accord. We released a paper in conjunction with a number of other of our partners uh, around that time to look at how circular economy can be utilized as a framework to tackle some of these challenges around CO2 emissions and staying below that, that one and a half degree um, cap at the end of the century. So, so whilst our focus over the last nine, 10 years has been around the economic rationale, what we're now developing out is around how do you utilize the circular economic framework to start to talk about those other elements. And certainly when you, you in the discussions I have around some of the organizations we work with, they're seeing a lot of demand from their employees now and from their, you know, retaining the best kind of talent around what are they actually doing to meet some of these challenges that we're seeing on the global stage. But fundamentally, from our perspective, the focus in the first stage is about the economic rationale and then actually what you get from that, the unintended consequences of LMD, the social and the environmental impact as well. Do you see much pushback when... Not so much in the economic opportunity, perhaps, certainly in the others. And people are saying, well, where's your data? Is it, is it pretty well received? Have you had issues with maybe doing more research to, to lay out the case more effectively? Or where are you in that journey of uh, uh, making your case? Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question because I think over the journey of, of 10 years, there the pervasiveness of the concept and the awareness of the concept has gathered at a, at a monumental pace. Um, our CEO, Andrew Morley, um, you know, uses an anecdote around did a Google search term for circular economy back in 2010. The hits were very, very nominal. 
And over the years, when you look at that trajectory of the term and, it, and it, uh, the search term and its pervasiveness, the angle of the uh, of the kind of graph is is very steep. And that's that's really that's really good because what it means is the concept is out there, and the concept is being talked about by different organisations across different geographies and different industries. The challenge then comes is making sure that the purity of what a future circular economy should look like remains remains the same. And you do see different nuances across different geographies uh, and across different industries. Now, we're, we're not a consultancy. We're a, we're a thought leader, right? So ours is about talking about what the future looks like, what a future economy looks like, a circular economy looks like. For us, it's then down to the other organizations that adopt that methodology then to, to understand what, what good looks like. So this, the answer, I guess, from my perspective is twofold. One is that there is a great encouragement around how pervasive this concept is. It's becoming a very much a mega trend that is, that is here to stay. The challenge is then refining what circular economy means to different industries and across different geographies. In terms of the pushback, I think what we have been very careful to do over the years is, and first and foremost, this has always been about delivering on the science and the fact behind the opportunity and then taking that information and then finding the right partners to elevate and scale that narrative. So whenever we start any of our particular focuses in any of our particular projects, it always starts with internal insight and analysis. What is the analysis that we want to see from our null hypothesis? And what does that mean in terms of the opportunity for disruption in particular areas or particular industries. And then once we have that, we test that idea on our network to refine our thinking a little bit before we then move that forward. Got it. Once again, you're listening to the Knowledge Institute, Achieving Resilience Edition, where we talk with thought leaders about achieving resilience in the era of stakeholder capitalism. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, here with James George of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. James, you mentioned... The facts you mention, how circular economy is relating, even the papers you're writing. A question that, that it begs is, what about those SDGs? How did these? How does a circular economy concept relate to sustainable development goals? And are there any conflicts, or what's that about? Certainly, no, no conflict. I mean, it, typically the the circular economy narrative sits around SDG 12, sustainable consumption and production. We work very closely with the UN environment, with the likes of the European Commission, G7, G20, around how we help to structure some of the thinking around circular economy and the utility that it can show to meet some of the SDGs. I think when you put it into those terms, certainly SDG 12 is where circular economy very much fits. There are certainly tendrils that read into some of the area, other areas around water and certainly some of the work around plastics that you, you see that, that overlap with some of the other areas. But certainly SDG 12 is the mainstay, the cornerstone of where circular economy um, applies. Got it. Now, I'm just thinking that as these SDGs have developed, there are metrics associated with those and, and, and goals. And people look to adopt them. Is your work being incorporated into those? Because it looks like there'd be a lot of uh, synergy. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think that the point around metrics is also really important. 
you don't know what good looks like if you if you can't measure it. If we can't generate a foundational start point, how do we know that we're heading in the right direction? Or in fact, how do we know if we're heading in the wrong direction? And certainly quite topically as well, this week one of the, the products that the foundation has released is Circulitic, which is our circular indicator methodology tool set which is an open source tool set available through the foundation's website, and which is designed to help organizations take an organizational look at where they are on that journey, to understand where they are now and where the gaps potentially are for where they want to be alongside their strategy for circular economy or alongside their roadmap for what good looks like in the future. So that launched literally this week, and the team will be spending the next well, at least the next number of months, talking to all of our network members, but of course anyone who operates in that kind of environment from a, from a business perspective, to understand how they score against the scorecard and what they need to do potentially then to improve that score as time progresses. Well, that's, that's very exciting. The fact that you've stepped in as an, I want to say a third party, an objective third party that, that doesn't have a product to sell as much as the thought leadership in a place, hopefully people can trust the data. It's, you know, sensitive. Eventually this will be, my hypothesis anyway, is that it will be something that's reportable and governments will ask companies to report on it. So you giving a head start and getting people to, to think about this in a specific quantitative way has got to be reassuring for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, there's been a lot of work that's happened around metrics, especially in circular economy in, in different areas over the years, whether that's through something like a life cycle analysis or the work that WBCSD have done. And, and certainly anything the foundation produces, we want it to be additive to the effort that's already been out there, not extractive or subtractive from, from effort. But, and I think also historically, it's not been necessarily, uh, it's not been our driver to be the one to hold what good looks like. Again, you know, as a thought leader, identifying where the North Star is and the general direction of travel. Our position has always been around, it's down to then the individual organizations to work out what good looks like. But this came from a huge amount of demand from our networks, from our partners, to help them understand where they are on that journey, which is why we then put the team together to, to look at this over the previous month and almost, you know, almost over the previous year and then used our network to test and refine this before we bought it and launched it um, on the 14th of January. And hopefully that will that's there to stay now and to build on and to see how that complements some of the other work that's already gone out, out there. But certainly to give transparency to individual organizations around where they sit and allow them to have a really open and frank conversation, both internally but also with their stakeholders, around how they see this journey developing over the coming months and years. What's the most popular misconception that people have about circular economy? And again, it depends very much on geography, actually. I, I, would, I would almost be a little bit flippant in saying when you take a North American perspective, circular economy sometimes is just seen about uh, you know, better recycling. How do we improve the recycling we're already doing? Circular economy is about recycling better or recycling more or recycling more intuitively. But it's actually much more than that. Recycling is part of that complex solution that you need to solve a complex challenge. 
But back to the, you know, the top of the conversation around the principles, keeping material in circulation. Part of that is, you know, ultimately when you get to the loop of last resort and you can't do anything more with that material, you do potentially want to break it down to reintroduce the start of the process. But before you get to that stage, you have the opportunity to reuse that material, to remanufacture, to repair, to send it into secondary and tertiary markets to increase the level of utility. So it's a, it's a cascade of opportunities. So that's some of the, the misconceptions you see. Some of the others are, this is, this is just a zero waste agenda. Again, it's much more than that. It's about designing out waste and pollution. We don't see waste and pollution created within biological systems. It's very much a man-made byproduct. In, in natural and biological systems, there is no waste. There's only secondary resource. So this is also about looking at the entirety, the, the holistic element of the, of the supply chain, of the value chain, and saying, how do we make sure that none of this becomes waste in the first place and continues to either recirculate or become a secondary resource for another process. So they're the most, I'd say they're probably the most common misconceptions around circular economy. What business recommendation do you feel strongly that most people in industry don't follow or, or, or maybe they don't believe? They might buy into the overall concept, but, but what recommendation do you wish people would follow more? I think in the conversations that I have, when when you get into what is circular economy and what does that mean to a particular industry or the particular opportunity, and when you almost see those light bulb moments or the realization that actually this just makes sense when you, when you dig into the economic argument, when you dig into looking at things through a slightly different lens. But the, the next question is then always, where do we start? And that's sometimes the real challenge for organizations, because when you take a circular economic approach for some industries, that might mean a fundamental redesign of how they've done business as usual to date. So for me, when, when faced with, with those kind of challenges, the, the question I typically ask organizations is around actually, very simply, what are your aspirations? What are you trying to achieve by adopting a circular economic agenda? And once you understand what that is, what good looks like for your particular industry, for your particular part in the value chain, for your particular product, work back from there to, to see how you're, how you're going to achieve it. So I, I very much think that is always going to be the starting point. What is the reason this is now on your, on your agenda? Is it because your competitors are doing it? Is it because you see an economic opportunity? Is it because your investors or your shareholders or your consumers are asking what are your credentials around it? And I'm pretty ambivalent around what is the reason that brings people to that conversation. The important part is understanding why it's important right now and then building the infrastructure around that to realize how you're going to do it. If you were going to leave the, our listeners with, with one thing that they can do after they're thinking about the reverse engineering part. Is there something that you've seen as a good practice that people can also try? One of the questions is always around, as an individual, what can I do? Um, how can I make better choices and make sure that I'm following a, a, a better methodology for circular economy or sustainability or for, doing envi for environmentally doing the right thing? And the challenge is that in a bad system, 
there are only bad choices. That's not to say that you, you shouldn't try to, as an individual, as a consumer, to make the right one. But ultimately, this has to be about shifting the system. If we take the example of back to plastic, we always see loads of really great work done by some really great organizations around ocean cleanup and beach clean. But these are very much downstream solutions, solutions that are designed to treat the problem once it's entered to the environment. What if you could come all the way back to the start of that plastic system and engage with the largest protagonists, the Coca-Colas, the Nestle's, the PepsiCo's, the Amcor's of this world, and redesign that system in such a way that when you or I or, or anyone makes decisions, we can only make good decisions because the system allows us to do so. This is not about necessarily saying no to plastic straws or paying 15 cents for a bag in the store. It's about when we go to make those decisions, we can only make good decisions because the system allows us to do so. And by only by engaging with the largest of the protagonists in that system, do we start to shift fundamentally the way the world around us works. That's a great question to end on. I think uh, respecting your time, although we could probably talk about this for hours, <laughs> I'd like to maybe wrap, wrap it up. A um, couple of personal questions. Uh, obviously, you're passionate about the topic and have had a very interesting background. Who has been a major inf- influence in your life and, and, and how? I mean, it, it sounds really, <laughs> really obvious. But the people I work with are a huge influence. I'm very fortunate to work with some very, very smart folks and very inspirational folks as well. Even to highlight and pick out people like Ellen, Ellen MacArthur, who is, I still get starstruck when I meet Ellen um, in, in and around the halls of the foundation. She just talks so very simply and very sincerely about the challenge and about the solution-based approach that we need to adopt. It's, it's mesmerizing. Our, our CEO, Andrew, as well, in the same sort of vein, you know, talks with absolute passion. But even down to the, the folks that I work with day in, day out, just always surprises me around the level of passion and engagement that this small organization based in cows on the Isle of Wight, south coast of the United Kingdom, the, the level of impact and reach and conversations we have is just really inspirational. Um, and I have to say, a fundamentally, it's just a great way to spend your professional career and your professional time, the point whereby this doesn't ever feel like a job. It's, uh, it's a, it's, I won't go as far to say it's, it's a calling, but it's not far off when you look at the impact and opportunity that's out there and the influence that myself as an individual and through the work of my, my colleagues and the foundation has the opportunity to shape. Well, well said and meaningfully put, movingly put. Do you have uh, any books or, or any other things you might recommend to people that have made an impact on you? I've never been, uh, you know, historically, I've never been a huge reader. And actually, it was only probably post the military that I, that I rediscovered the power of actually just immersing yourself within, within books. And I guess the two that have really stood out over the last 18 to 24 months, the first one of those is Essentialism by, by Greg McCowan. And I just love it. There's loads of really great nuggets of information in there. But the two that stick with me is, firstly, if it's not 100% yes, it's always a no. 
And that's a really powerful way to try and bring into your busy day-to-day life. And the second one is, you know, around this idea of what is better, travel 100 miles in one direction or 10 miles in 10 directions. And, and I think that school of thinking opens for me a really interesting area of self-reflection and self-development. And the second one, which has fundamentally changed the way I approach everything, is Why We Sleep by Matthew Walker. Again, I spent, like I'm sure many um, of the listeners, but many of the people I know as well, on the gravy train, working long hours, sleeping very few, thinking, you know, living for the weekend and thinking um, you can just keep performing at your best. And, and completely having a transformation to where now I quite happily say I'm in bed most nights by 9 p.m. Uh, and I try and get at least eight hours sleep a night. And, and the fundamental physical transformation I've found that of that having has just been remarkable. And, and I recommend that literally to anyone who will listen or give me the chance to stand on the soapbox. Well, this is your soapbox. So <laughs> hold on. <laughs> uh, listen, what online resources do you recommend or how can people find you online? I think if, if anyone's looking to get into to the circular economy, whether that's with a, an embryonic level of understanding or with a level of familiarity, definitely check out our learning hub, which we released in June of last year, which is an open source, interactive set of modules around the circular economy, looking at a number of different industries um, that you can dip in and out of. And it's very much designed to take you on that journey from little or no understanding to a level of uh, you know reasonable expertise in the concept. And you can find that at ellenmacarthurfoundation.org forward slash learning hub. But there's one of the beauties now is there is a wealth of work and documentary evidence and books and, and all sorts out there when you just type in circular economy into, into Google and about founding, finding the right level of engagement and deep dive that you want. But if anyone has any specific questions around the work of the foundation or our work with business and the other uh, areas that I mentioned earlier on, don't hesitate to get in contact with myself, either through LinkedIn or through um, info at ellenmacarthurfoundation.org. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions and always happy and ready to help those organizations who are trying to bring circular economy into the mainstay of what they're doing in their day-to-day business. Great. Also, everyone, you can find details on our show notes and transcripts at infosys.com slash IKI. That's I-N-F-O-S-Y-S.com forward slash IKI in our podcast section. Uh, James, thank you so much for your time and a highly interesting discussion and best of luck on the new arrival tomorrow. Jeff, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Everyone, you've been listening to the Knowledge Institute special edition at Abbey Road Studios, where we're talking with thought leaders about achieving resilience in the era of stakeholder capitalism. Thanks to our producer, Yulia Dabari, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.